you know, I really think about if we can make a city that is safe enough for a kid to go meet her friends in the park and then go get ice cream when they're done, I think that's going to be a city that works for everybody. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm honored to serve as your host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, February 26th, 2021. And for this week's episode, I'm excited to finally share with you the discussion with Doug Gordon of the Brooklyn Spoke and the War on Cars podcast that I mentioned last week was delayed due to the rather pesky rogue winter storm that descended upon Texas early last week, knocking out the power, the heat, water, and internet for millions of people here in the South. The irony, as you'll soon discover in my conversation with Doug, which was actually recorded on February 4th, is that New York had been hit with its own extraordinary winter storm the days prior to our conversation. So that part of the dialogue, in retrospect, makes me chuckle a bit. Oh, had I only known then what was in store for us here in Texas. (laughs) Okay. But first, before we slide into all that fun, please allow me a moment to recognize that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. And if you too would like to help support the podcast and the Active Towns Initiative, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and simply click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. As always, there's a convenient link in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode. One last thing before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice. This serves two primary purposes. One, it will help to ensure that you'll receive each new episode. And two, it also helps enhance the visibility of the podcast to those who might be searching for something to listen to. Thanks. Okay, time to get this discussion with Doug Gordon rolling. Doug, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks for having me. This is great. It's so nice to see you virtually and to get to talk to you. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and Can you start us off with just telling a little bit about your background and how you came to be engaged with bicycle slash safer streets advocacy? Yeah. So currently, uh, I'm one of the co-hosts of the War on Cars podcast, but my time in safe streets advocacy goes back over a decade. I got into advocacy the way I think a lot of people do. I was just riding my bike around the city and over time started to notice the ways in which streets would change. So I would ride down a street and then the next day there'd be a bike lane on it that wasn't there before. And I would start to ask questions. Where did it come from? Who decided to put it there? That led me to Transportation Alternatives, our big advocacy group here in New York. That led me to Streets Blog, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. And it kind of just sent me down the rabbit hole of advocacy. And I am not a person who tends to dive just partway into something. I dive all the way into something. You know, I I ran a 5K and then ran a half marathon and then ran a marathon. So I just got really involved. I really have always liked and loved cities. And I started to get involved with a car-free Prospect Park campaign in my backyard. 
So I'd like to go running in the park and there were still cars going through at the time. That led me to Clarence Eckerson Jr. of Street Films fame. And from there, it just kind of snowballed. I, st- I started my blog, Brooklyn Spoke, in 2010, mostly because I just wanted to write about something I found interesting. And as the way things do, writing on the internet led me to really interesting people who I learned from. And that was the, the kind of three-pronged beginning of my journey. Fantastic. And so it sounds like this wasn't really your professional background. Yeah, I, I'm not a planner in any sense. I am a TV producer. So I've worked in television since 1999. I mostly have worked in cable television. I did some stuff for PBS. I worked on um, four-part episodes for Nova, the science program on PBS. Uh, I was the showrunner for a show on the Travel Channel for a long time. I've worked on stuff for Discovery, for National Geographic. You know, and actually, I think my background in television production and writing has served me well as an advocate because part of the job that I've had in television is to take a very complicated subject matter and boil it down to a short amount of time and explain it in a way that makes sense to a general audience. And in the world that you and I exist in, there are a lot of complicated concepts that don't translate to regular people's understanding of how they move through the world. So that stuff that I've worked on in my day job in television, which I I still do now and then a a little less so as I focus more on advocacy, um, it's really come in handy. It's really come in handy. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned something there and, and, you know, it's like something pops into mind of, of like in the work that we do, it is very, very complicated. It's very simple at one level, but then when it really comes to, to making change happen, it gets more complicated. And oftentimes the general public is, is just like baffled as to, to, to what to make heads or tails of, as to what's being said. And oftentimes it's because of jargon that's yes. out there. So you had a little bit of jargon there. You said showrunner. What's a showrunner? Yeah. Showrunner is like the executive producer. It's, it's kind of the person who is ultimately responsible for writing and producing the episode. I oversaw teams of writers and editors, but everything would filter up to me and I'd kind of give the last pass on the script. I would have bosses above me at the network, of course, but yeah, literally the person who runs the show. Yeah. But yeah, the jargon, the jargon thing is a good thing to be aware of. So yeah. We'll probably uh, run, run across some jargon uh, during this episode. And if, uh, if it gets too wonky, I'll, I'll try to, in, as I go through this and create the show notes, I'll try to define some of the jargon if we don't uh, hit pause and, and, and do it as we're, we're, we're communicating here. I actually had a rule on some of my television shows that I worked on where you were allowed, I would call it, you were allowed one SAT word per hour. That didn't mean you couldn't describe complicated things, but if you were using really specific terminology, you had to stop, explain it, and then start your story again. And so you can only do that so many times. Right. Got it. So you guys just had uh, a little bit of a thump in terms of weather this week. Uh, Are you guys doing okay there? Uh, It's fine. I love it. You know, when the snow comes down in New York, it's beautiful. It's quiet. It's fun to be outside. It's it's certainly not a whole lot of fun if you have somewhere to be. you know, not a whole lot of us have many places to be right now. So it's not so bad. My kids love it. We went sledding. We went outside. I love going with them. So I, I love it. It's great. Fantastic. Now, how much did you guys get? I think we got over a foot, which I believe this was one of the biggest storms we've had in in decades, probably certainly since 1996. 
Got it. And that's that's one of my uh, follow up questions for you. The, the only time that I've been to New York City is in uh, the January time frame. And it was during is a few years back during one of the polar plunges and the city got about six to seven inches of snow. It was absolutely beautiful, but it was also very, very bitter cold. How often is the city getting this type of snow these days? We th- we had a really mild winter last year, and even a couple of years ago, I remember it being something like 71 degrees on Christmas Day. So we don't get a lot of snow. When we do get it, I was just reading that we tend to now get big dumps like this because there's just more moisture in the atmosphere, and um, it, it doesn't happen that frequently. It's certainly not from you know when I first moved here 22 years ago. Got it. Got it. So... In the news today, or maybe it was yesterday, there's a little bit of a drama around the snow piling up in the in the protected bike lanes. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So, you know, like a lot of American cities, we just don't have the tools to remove snow from our bicycle lanes. And we have more and more than we've had since forever. And uh, the city is falling farther and farther behind in terms of its ability to keep up. It didn't it hasn't purchased the right equipment, the right size snow plows that fit in bike lanes. And um, there's still a mentality that bike lanes are not essential, right? You need to clear roads for emergency vehicles and buses, which I totally understand, but they're not deploying small snow plows in places where they're needed. So, you know, sort of the strategy in New York is wait for it to melt. Right, right. Which is really, really tough when you're in a situation where you're investing in putting in these all ages and abilities, protected bike lanes. And it's like, hey, especially for the essential uh, workers who have to get to places and, you know, they anticipate being able to jump on their bike and be able to get to their destination. And it's just, hey, I can't get there, you know, easily, safely, because of the fact that uh, the city hasn't yet invested. And we don't have to go into all the drama, but it, it just it, it reminded me how important it is for cities that when you invest the dollars into create this network of protected facilities, uh, you also have to be thinking about investing in the equipment and the resources, the people, the labor to be able to maintain those facilities appropriately for your condition, whether, you know, you're in Austin, Texas or in Portland, Oregon or in a place where you're going to get a dump of snow. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of cities and New York is no exception, like to pat themselves on the back for the annual mileage of bike lanes that they've installed. But that number is somewhat meaningless if half of your bike lanes are useless when it snows or they become parking lanes because they're not fully protected. So uh, exactly. It's, it can't just be we put in some bike lanes and washed our hands of it all and now we're good. It, you have to con- it's an investment. You have to keep you have to keep curating it. You have to keep maintaining it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you want to keep that momentum rolling of people being excited about using this active mobility network that you're, you're creating. So to keep that, you know, from a behavior standpoint, you want to continue to reinforce that process that routine of being able to to get out there, get to your meaningful destinations, uh, whatever they may be. Maybe it's not a commute anymore. Maybe it's other meaningful destinations you want to be able to continue to support that behavior. So earlier you mentioned 
the War on Cars podcast. Talk a little bit about the origins of the podcast, who your co-hosts are, and how you guys came up with the name. <laughs> so we started the podcast in 2018, in September, and it is co-hosted by my friend Aaron Napperstek, who is the founding editor of Streets Blog, which you know we said your, your listeners will be well familiar with, I'm sure. And Sarah Goodyear, who's a journalist, she's written for City Lab and The Atlantic and other publications. She focuses a lot on progressive transportation and issues like that. And we came together and said, like, yeah, we should do something. You know, we, we like each other. We all have varying perspectives on this stuff. You know, Aaron and Sarah come at it from a journalistic perspective. I come at, come at it from sort of like an advocate's perspective. We all do advocacy to a degree. And look, there are a lot of podcasts out there on very niche subjects that tend to be very policy driven, and that's fine. I will listen to a hundred of those, but we wanted to create something that we felt like my mother-in-law in Wilmette outside of Chicago, who drives everywhere because she has to, could listen to and respond to. And, and, and also that took on the idea of cars as like a, a cultural problem to solve, not just a policy problem to solve. And so we launched the podcast and it's been great. Uh, in terms of the title, again, as I'm sure your listeners are familiar, anytime you take a single parking spot and say, we're going to turn it into an expanded sidewalk, uh, expanded bus stop, or we're going to take out 50 parking spots and put in a bike lane, you're accused of waging a war on cars. And that terminology has been used by everybody from uh, Rob Ford, the former mayor of Toronto, to folks in Seattle. You'll find it everywhere. So we decided to embrace that title and use it. And we think it kind of matches the sensibility of what we're going for for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And and I get the inside joke of that. And Some so people wanted, do not, right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And when I say inside joke, I happen to be wearing my uh, my shirt from the all-powerful all uh, bike lobby because that's yes. another thing that would get hurled out there is, oh, it's the all-powerful bike lobby coming in to destroy our communities. Yeah. I mean, anytime you tweak the status quo, right? The war on Christmas. If you if you have so much as one Hanukkah song out of 20 in a holiday concert, it is a war on Christmas. Or, you know, a woman gets promoted to be a board member on a board with a dozen men. It's a war on men. So we we felt like it would be kind of fun to take that kind of title and play with it. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the humor and enjoy it. And and hopefully people who are just discovering the podcast now <laughs> because we're talking about it. Yeah. Be, be rest assured that there's plenty of criticism out there of cars in general and the automobile industry in particular. Uh, I was just finished listening the uh, the episode on the Cadillac Escalade and just the massive, massive size of that that behemoth. Uh, but you know, the majority of our audience, I'm sure, embraces active mobility and tries to do active mobility as as much as they can. However, for for at least for the seventy five percent of the population uh, or the uh, the audience that is in North America, we probably drive too. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we've, we've got a car and it sits in the driveway. Fortunately, you know, 
95 to 99% of the time because of other decisions that we've made in our life that we have, you know, and we have that privilege of being able to not have to drive uh, as much as other people do. So uh, rest assured that the spirit is is also, uh, you know, where we're coming from, from an active towns perspective. We want to create healthy, active communities that encourage active living and active mobility and, and not necessarily demonizing one group of people or another per se. Yeah. So. It's, it's all about choices. It's about, it's not about eliminating cars. It's about eliminating car dependency. And yeah. so that you have that choice to bike, to get your gallon of milk, as opposed to taking the SUV and, um, and, and instilling activity in your daily life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good thing. Now you mentioned perspectives. Uh, you also have the perspective as a parent too. Yeah, I have two kids. My daughter is eleven, and my son is turning eight soon. And yeah, that's that's fueled a lot of my advocacy because I try to see the city, especially my neighborhood in Brooklyn, where I live, through their eyes. And my daughter is starting to walk around the neighborhood herself to go meet friends, and and so th- you know, I really think about. If we can make a city that is safe enough for a kid to go meet her friends in the park and then go get ice cream when they're done, I think that's going to be a city that works for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And in the early days, were you guys, were you a cargo bike dad kind of family or? So I have a work cycles freight, which is not exactly a cargo bike, but it's got kind of like a long tail with a seat in the front. And um, I carry my son while he's still small enough to sit in the front. My daughter, she's now biking mostly on her own power. They're both pretty precocious bicyclists. They, my daughter was on two wheels pedaling before she turned four, and uh, my son too. So, but it's the, it, you know, I say it's the only way to fly. We get everywhere. It's, it's, I love it. That's great. That's great. Did they start off on, on a balance bike and then graduate to pedaling or did they go right to pedaling? Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my advice for all parents skip the training wheels, just go right to the balance bike. As soon as my daughter could walk, we had this little balance bike that we kept by the door of our apartment and didn't push it on her. And just, she slowly would start picking it up and taking it around. Yeah. One of my earliest episodes with, was, uh, with the, uh, the president of womb bikes USA and, and, uh, and Matthias and I were talking about, you know, how that's really changed how, kids learn how to ride now is, you know, getting on those balance bikes early, they get that glide going. And then, you know, it's a smooth transition. Typically, it's the best. I wish that's how I learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's good stuff. So earlier, you mentioned about communication and, uh, you know, the conversations that we're having, they, they can be difficult conversations. And you also mentioned that change uh, is fear inducing. So let's talk a little bit more about that and, and, you know, the influence of media and, and, and how we can better navigate these turbulent waters. Yeah. I mean, I think on the issue of communications, we were talking about how some of the concepts that we often dwell in, in our world are really complicated and not intuitive. They seem really like common sense ideas to people who get it. Someone like you, someone like me, your listeners. Um, Of course, if you slow cars down, it's going to be safer. If you have fewer cars on the street and give more space to people on bikes, it's going to be better. On a second level, if you put in that bike lane, maybe the street will process more people. But to drivers who are only used to kind of like two modes of being, they're either parking their car or driving their car, it's hard for them to understand how that's going to benefit them. 
It's hard for people who don't bike to understand that maybe they would if they had a safe option. And certain concepts like induced demand, you know, why is it possible? How does it work? Really, you're going to widen a street and that's going to lead to more traffic? That makes no sense. Like that doesn't work in any other area of physics that we sort of understand. Those are complicated subjects. I, I think a really great example are helmet laws, mandatory helmet laws. You know, I individually, you might decide to wear a helmet because it keeps you safer. However, a mandatory helmet law in a city is a good way to make cycling less safe overall. That's not an intuitive concept for someone who doesn't read about this stuff and doesn't live it. So we have a challenge is how to describe that stuff to people who don't get it, who don't know why they should get it or really care. And I think advocates are not always great at telling that story. So yeah, I think, you know, how we communicate these ideas, how could your city be better if fewer people are driving? I think people kind of understand, but it's hard at the individual level to get how it's better for that person. So from your TV background and your storytelling background, any tips on how we can sort of de-escalate the 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 narratives that you know the knee-jerk sort of negative reactions that that occur whenever any changes to the streetscape come about? I don't think you can lessen the negative reactions that come about. They happen almost no matter what. I'll give a good example from the TV world. When you watch a documentary, whether it's a History Channel show or a two-hour feature documentary, it's very rare that the documentary will start with a lot of statistics. That The show will start with explaining concepts or using, like we said, jargon and, and wonky terminology. Because probably if you were choosing something to watch on Netflix, you would choose something else within about 30 seconds. Usually it starts with a story of a person who embodies the problem or story that the documentary is trying to tell. And so I think that, you know, the advocate who gets up at a community meeting and says, everybody can bike and biking is safer and 235 people were killed on our streets last year and carbon emissions make, uh, you know, one third of those come from transportation. You're going to lose people really fast. The advocate who gets up and says, I'm a dad. I want to be able to bike my kids to school. Just the other day, I was trying to do that, and a driver on his phone cut us off, and we almost fell off the bike and got hurt. Nobody can really argue with that. And that also might be a story you want to hear more of, especially from different perspectives, more than just like the white dad from Park Slope. So I think storytelling is a key part of advocacy that we do not always do well. It's changing in the social media age where it's just so easy to put up pictures of people and video of people biking around their city, walking around their city, going on trails, whatever it is. But I, th I think that's a thing we need to take to heart. Have the, the data in your back pocket, be ready to use it later in your show to extend the metaphor, but start with a personal story or someone else's personal story. Yeah. It seems like there's been a narrative that has developed uh, ever since the pandemic that people are starting to rediscover their streets in a way that they previously didn't understand their streets. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, even I, as someone who is pretty observant about what's happening on the street outside my house or in my neighborhood, you know, we're all stuck in a much smaller 
geographic area than we're used to. Many of us are not, if we're lucky to work from home and, and, and be employed, you know, we're, we're not going into an office. Maybe we're avoiding the really busy grocery store that's a little closer to us that we've been going to and going to a, you know, one that's just another block away that's smaller and less crowded. So we're discovering things in our neighborhood that we might not have used before. I, I think with the pandemic, because we're all forced to think about being outside more, whether that's because we don't want to go to a gym or our gym is closed and we need to just get out for a bike ride or a run or a walk with our kids or whatever it is, or because our favorite restaurant can't have indoor dining and now they've got this space in a parking spot, it's forced this very creative way of thinking about how we can use our streets. There's someone on my street who I see, uh, not when there's a lot of snow outside, jumping rope in the loading zone in front of the art store that's on my block. And then the delivery truck comes in, UPS or whatever, he gets out of the way and then it leaves. And then he gets back in there and keeps jumping rope. So that's not something I saw before March of last year. Uh, It's been, despite how tough things have been, that's been a kind of fun and inspiring thing to see. We're creative, ingenious, resilient people. Human beings are, are really good at that kind of stuff. So that's been fun to see. It's funny. It's that story of the jump roper reminds me of uh, bringing people back into public spaces. Yeah. I mean, people look, I keep kind of going back to like folks like you and me who are the inside baseball types. We know that streets can be used for better things than storing someone's personal vehicle for eight to 12 hours for eight to 12 days. We know that that spot for one SUV can park bicycles. It can be benches. It can be a place to sit and have a bite and talk to your neighbor. But most people don't think about this stuff. They just assume it's like nature. It's a part of the the landscape and you can't change it. And now the pandemic has forced a creative accounting of how we can better use our space. And that has unleashed a weird and new constituency of people who wouldn't call themselves advocates who are just people who want to go out to eat because they're frustrated being at home, who want a safe place to bike with their kids and never really thought about, oh yeah, you know, our our walk to the park is like really dangerous and it should be better. And so, like I said, this is a really hard time and I, I, I don't like to use the word opportunity because it feels, again, opportunistic, but it, we have this new accounting of how we can look at our streets. And, and hopefully that'll be a good thing that continues after this is over. Yeah. Yeah. And there is progress. I mean, there's, it, it seems like every single day as I'm monitoring uh, what's happening around the globe, we're seeing cities taking positive steps. Certainly the, the news coming out of Paris and, and the things that are, that are happening there are, are quite encouraging. And uh, you guys did a, an episode uh, on that as well, which is a, a fabulous episode. Yeah, my co-host Sarah Goodyear spoke to Christoph Nazjowski, who is the former deputy mayor under Anne Hidalgo, who was focused on a lot of the, the bike and transportation related stuff. He's now doing um, ecology, basically, like greening of public space. He's still a deputy mayor, but in a different role. And uh, yeah, they, I think they've sort of been the, the hero of, of international cities and an inspiration to tiny towns, to New York, to everything in between. It's been really awesome to see. I mean, her leadership in Hidalgo has just been incredible. Um, pre-pandemic as well. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, I had the honor of of being able to attend her very first uh, car free streets day back in 2015, and and was able to you know film what it was like on the Champs Elysees with no cars and and people you know it's just awesome. rollerblading and biking and running, and then I went back that next day Monday morning and filmed you know the cars whizzing by and just the the din of noise is just it was just extraordinary the difference and so the opportunity that you know might be able to emerge in the future the very near future hopefully of Champs Elysees you know redesigned in a completely people oriented manner with uh, the greening effect they're going to try to make it like a linear park much more uh, huge opportunities now good news coming out of the new york city area too you guys have two major crossings that are going to have yeah. uh, bike lanes uh, talk a little bit about that what's going on there Right. So there's been a huge campaign by transportation alternatives and advocates in both Queens and Brooklyn and also in Manhattan to put bike lanes on the Queensboro and Brooklyn bridges. So there exists a shared pedestrian cycling path on the Queensboro bridge and on the Brooklyn bridge. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been to New York and like one of the seminal tourist experiences is to walk over the Brooklyn bridge. And it's really crowded. It's shared with commuting cyclists with recreational cyclists, city bikers, tourists walking, snapping pictures with selfie sticks, and it's a mess and it, it doesn't work for anybody. And so um, the mayor just announced in his latest State of the City address that he would be putting a bike lane on the roadbed of the Brooklyn Bridge, taking a lane from cars and turning it into a two-way bike lane, and then also on the Queensboro Bridge doing something similar and leaving the shared paths on both bridges just to pedestrians. So, you know, I think here in New York, knowing it and using it, I might have my issues with some of the designs. I um, certainly have my questions about whether or not he'll execute these things in the 11 months that de Blasio has left in office. But if you can put a bike lane on the Brooklyn Bridge, you can put a bike lane anywhere. And um, I think it'll be a really big inspiration to other cities, other parts of New York. And I'm I'm thrilled at the news. It's really awesome to see. Yeah, yeah. And I'm with you there. I The very first thing that I did when I heard that is I started diving into the design and I'm like, hmm. Don't, don't ruin it for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just enjoy the headlines. Like it's good news for now. Like, well, it's, it's kind of like planting your flag on the moon of like, okay, we did it. Like we can quibble about like what the moon base should look like and how many rooms it should have and how we're all going to get there back and forth. But we did it. We got the, we got the first person on the moon. Yeah. So good. Let's enjoy that. I, I totally agree. Yep. That's yeah. I believe me. I didn't, I didn't tweet anything about it. I didn't, I just like, <laughs> You have more restraint than I do. It was a note. Well, since we just talked about tweeting and and all of that, so is uh, is Brooklyn Spoke still an active blog, or have you kind of shifted your 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 time and resources around a little? I don't write as much on the blog anymore because I feel like a lot of the stuff that I used to write about is just up there and speaks for itself. And there aren't. I've been doing this for a long time, and I, I think one of the things that I like to say is that there are no new arguments against bike lanes or p- streets for people. And I spent a lot of time on the blog debunking a lot of those things in 2010, 2012, that kind of like height of the bike lash in New York. And since then, I haven't heard any new arguments <laughs> worth debunking. It's all the old ones. Now, there are lots of new arguments for bike lanes and people-friendly streets 
the pandemic, obviously being a big one. Um, climate change is a bigger part of the story than it was 10 years ago. So I haven't done that. I have focused more lately on general media production. I'm doing some like video stuff for mobility companies, you know, companies that don't speak this language of the advocate or like the street level activity that you see, but are sort of more like tech companies or venture capitalist backed companies. They're getting into this space. So I'm, I'm doing a few more things along those lines. And also, of course, the podcast now is taking up a lot of time. Right, right. And, uh, and you do have a pretty good active presence out on uh, Twitter. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing. Um, I am tweeting sometimes about very parochial issues that are of no concern to anybody outside of my immediate neighborhood. And then sometimes I'm talking about stuff that's like, here's this incredible example from Brussels or from Paris or from Copenhagen. And let's do that here. And, and that's the, the thing I've loved about Twitter is a hell site. And we all know the problems that it's caused in, in democracy and in our society. But at the same time, for advocates, it's connected us to really great ideas and is a powerful storyteller in and of itself. She can, in and of itself, you can post a picture, a video, and put it up there and see what's possible in other cities and instantly get feedback from your elected officials where you live and say, why not here? When we return after this short intermission in the action, Doug talks about some of the recent developments he's excited and encouraged about. He discusses the Safer Streets for Everyone movement growing out of New York City and the fundamental street use entitlement issues we must address as a society. But before we move into these topics, please allow me a moment for a very quick request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please consider sharing it within your network. You'll be helping me expand the audience and provide additional momentum to the culture of activity movement. Okay, that's all for this brief break. Let's bring our conversation with Doug Gordon back up to speed. What are the things are you really excited about that's happening right now? In New York, we're in the midst of a, an election. So the, the presidential election is over, thankfully, and we're focusing on the mayoral election. And the thing that I'm happiest about or most excited about is that there is no anti-bike lane candidate. They are all, we have a lot of people running over a dozen right now for the Democratic nomination, and they are all sticking out from one person to the next pro people streets positions. It's really great to see. That's the fruit of lots of advocacy from many people in New York. So that is a really, I think that's the thing that most excites me. Excites me. We, are, we are primed and ready for the next mayor, should he or she get in there and want to do it, to just run with this stuff and go. So I think that's probably the thing that has me most excited Internationally, I think like we've been talking about, just the examples you're seeing from so many cities where two to three years work worth of work is being done in two to three months. And you're seeing all the old excuses melt away. So it, that's been fun to see. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's a it's a matter too of not allowing good enough, you know, <laughs> suffer at trying to be perfect. Yeah, which kind of brings us back around to uh, being caught off guard with being able to maintain facilities that may be going up faster than cities can have the the capability to ramp up to maintain them. 
not to let them off. I mean, they still need to start preparing their budgets and, per, you know, get attaining, you know, purchasing the equipment that's needed to maintain those facilities. But I totally get it. Like Paris, if you're like dropping down, you know, overnight, you know, may, major networks of protected bike lanes, I get that you probably haven't already made the investment to, to maintain, you know, that space properly. So again, not being too overly critical is, I think, important too. To to you know, let's let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here, and and let's make sure that we're making we're going we're we're being a little bit patient on that. Yeah, and the more that cities do, the more of a constituency they build for doing more. You know, advocacy historically has been the, the bike advocacy has been privileged white guys, you know, in privileged neighborhoods. And that's changed and it took too long and it still has a lot farther to go, but we're seeing more infrastructure in more neighborhoods and that's creating more demand in the neighborhoods that are getting the stuff and creating more advocates and then creating more demand in the neighborhoods that aren't getting the stuff because they're saying, how come they get all the stuff? How come we don't get all the stuff? So the, the optimistic side of that is that, yeah, the bike lanes get blocked and they're not repainted when the street gets repaved. But now there are people in all of those neighborhoods who are saying, hey, how come the bike lane didn't get repainted when those people didn't, you know, either didn't exist or if they did exist, didn't have all the channels available to everybody else to have their voices heard. So I think, you know, if that's the, I think if I can add one more thing to like what I'm excited about is like the broadening of the constituency for whom safe, comfortable, you know, active travel focused streets is a growing priority. That's been, that's been great to see. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is so encouraging that so many of our discussions are now coming from the perspective of a much broader tent of livability and safer streets and safer communities for everyone. And it's not this, you know, sort of lightning rod thing of a fighting for a bike lane for a bike lane's sake for the, you know, cause the narrative really was that, you know, Oh yeah. You're talking about, you know, those, those uh, middle-aged males and in, in Lycra riding their bike, you know, in the bike lane kind of thing. It's no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a safer community, a more inviting community, a more vibrant community. And oh, by the way, a major part of that is trying to slow motor vehicle traffic down, decrease the volume of motor vehicle traffic through neighborhoods and, and down, you know, per, you know, downtown main streets and things of that nature, uh, while making it safer for people to be able to get around, be able to walk. For sure. Safety is a huge issue in New York City most of the major movements uh, nationwide uh, have bubbled up out of New York City. Let's talk a little bit more about safer streets for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of New York City exceptionalism, as there often is, to some of these discussions that we, we kind of warp the discussion because we're so big. Our media, you know, the national media is headquartered here. So the Brooklyn Bridge story being a really good example of like a bike lane on a bridge not the it's not a that's not a novel thing that exists in every city it already exists in new york but it gets the attention of people 
like I said, in our media. And then you have the Wall Street Journal running a story about it. So that inspires people in other cities. I mean, look, I'm biased. I think New York has the best advocacy community in the country, but I'd be lying if I didn't say like, I'm sometimes jealous of what I see coming out of Pittsburgh or Minneapolis, cities like that. I know Austin has made a lot of stuff happen in recent years. Oakland has had been having really important conversations about their slow streets program. And, you know, I think we all just learn from each other. So yeah, a lot of great stuff happens here. You know, New York was the first city to really kick off a big Vision Zero program. I don't think that we've done it very well for lots of reasons that would require a separate podcast discussion. But now other cities do it. You know, we have Families for Safe Streets, which got a lot of uh, lower the speed limit here, got more traffic safety cameras installed, and now there are chapters springing up in other cities. So like I said, there's a little bit of New York City exceptionalism where it's like, you know, our, our pizza and bagels are the best and so is our advocacy. But I don't know, there, there's a way that New York sometimes does inspire the rest of, look, we had city bike, right? But we weren't the first bike share system in the US. That was Minneapolis, DC, other cities, Denver. But when city bike launched, it was huge, you know, 6,000 bikes and hundreds of stations. And that captured a ton of attention. And there's no getting away from the fact that New York has an outsized effect on the rest of the country. So I'm, I'm lucky to be here for that reason, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's encouraging too about the the vision uh or or, or really I, I should say it this way what's encouraging about the fact that this stuff these initiatives are happening in new york city is that then they become uh international news and it's the great thing about these types of initiatives the vision zeros of the world the families for safe streets is that this is applicable regardless of the size of the city a safer a safer community, a safer street is just as important for a village of 2,000 people as it is for a city of 200,000 people or a city of 2 million people. So it's, it's a universal narrative. It's a universal story. And it really brings us back around to how do we change the narrative over speeding motor vehicles and how do we sort of, you know, step back from the inclination that whenever we get behind the motor, you know, the wheel of a motor vehicle that we're going to get from point A to point B as absolutely fast as possible. And I think that it's starting, that's one of the things that I'm encouraged about. I think that is starting to change. It has a long ways to go. Yeah. And we've got other challenges, like what we were talking or alluded to earlier, the the size of SUVs and the Escalade being a great example of that. Yeah. So, it, but I'm encouraged by the fact that we're starting to have those difficult discussions and, and people are starting to, it's starting to resonate with people. Yeah. I, I talk a lot about driver entitlement. We talk a, a lot about it on the podcast. One of the things that I really talk about is we have to ask ourselves and drivers have to ask themselves, and I know there's not always a, a neat separation between ourselves and themselves, what are you entitled to when you drive? When you drive, you are entitled to a seat, a private seat, air conditioning, climate control, your own entertainment. You're entitled to mobility if you otherwise are unable to walk very far or bike somewhere or take transit. You're entitled to 
assistance carrying heavy loads, whether that's 10 bags of groceries or you know, three kids and all of their equipment to go to hockey practice or whatever it is. But the thing you're not entitled to is speed. There's just nothing in the rule book that I think says you in your car have more of an entitlement to get to your destination faster than I do. You're entitled to safety, but not more so than I am on my bike or when I'm walking across the street. So I think, you know, similar to what you're saying is like, we really have to start talking about the speed of motor vehicles in cars. And when someone feels entitled to go as fast as they want anywhere they want in a city, then what is that taking away from what I'm entitled to, from what a senior citizen crossing the street is entitled to, or a disabled person trying to get across the street is entitled to? And that's the fundamental entitlement issue that we need to address. You are not entitled to speed. That's it. You're entitled to safety, comfort, and all the things I'm entitled to, but that's it. And you know, you're not entitled to space either. And so that's that gets back to the parking issue of what we're using streets for. You are not more entitled to space to store your giant living room sized Cadillac Escalade any more than anybody else. And maybe 12 of us are entitled to store our bikes in that spot instead. So these are all big questions we need to ask. And, and, and they address so many problems that we are facing. So it's good that we're asking those questions. It seems like we're starting to see some partnerships that are developing from surprising locations. Uh, the other day, I saw an article from uh, AAA Colorado that was, you know, talking about this very topic of speed, and they they had the you know the the famous you know grid of the likely fatality rates you know for a pedestrian at the different motor vehicle speeds, and this is an organization representing. Motor vehicle drivers saying, yeah. hey, be okay. Don't overreact when, you know, your city starts to talk about lowering speed limits. It's better for all of us. It's safer for the motor vehicle driver. And most importantly, it's also safer for the more vulnerable users outside of the car. Another encouraging national movement that I've seen is with AARP the AARP Livable Communities Initiative that's that's literally going out to all of their membership across North America talking about these very same topics and encouraging people to uh, understand and, and uh, embrace the fact that slower motor vehicle speeds and access to protected facilities and all ages and abilities facilities is something that we all should be applauding and calling for at, at the local level. Are there any other surprising partnerships that you've seen sort of bubbling up out of the, the various boroughs there? Not, not surprising, but maybe long overdue uh, partnerships, perhaps. I think a lot of our movement in specifically bike advocacy was very siloed. You know, like I said, it was like white environmentalists in the 70s and, you know, hipsters and all the stereotypes that you hear. But obviously there's been more of a focus on equity and bringing people to the table, giving them the table and taking a step back, letting them create their own spaces where they're doing incredible work and just staying not involved. I think that's been a good thing. I think housing has become a huge issue, whether it's Austin, whether it's New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, we have a big affordability crisis, especially in close-in neighborhoods where all the jobs are and access to opportunity is. So 
We're, we're seeing ways in which if you can't create the housing fast enough, you have to create better bus lanes and better bike lanes so people can access those neighborhoods and come in and out of them with ease. I've seen much more of a partnership in the last couple of years among housing advocates and transportation advocates. So, so that's been really, really good to see. And I, I think that's going to be applicable to every city in America over the coming years. Yeah, yeah. No, those are all great points, and especially along the lines of uh, you know engaging the populations that have per, have traditionally been underinvested in uh, the communities of color, and and uh, and all of that you know bubbled up to the forefront, obviously in 2020 as well. In addition to the challenges that we faced with the the pandemic, uh, we had you know the 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 unrest around Black Lives Matters and really coming to terms with some of our, our efforts to, you'd mentioned the, the Slow Streets program in Oakland and it, it very quickly, they had to sort of shift and realize that maybe they weren't listening as well as they could to each of the different communities. And what I love about that particular story was that they they were able to pivot, they were able to engage the communities much better, and then those communities were able to help shape what the next version of those slow streets ended up looking like. And I think that was a great lesson for all of us. And you know, imagine this. I mean, that's one of the great things about the technology that we now have access to is we are all sort of in this living laboratory and learning from the trial and error, the tactical urbanism sort of thing of do it lighter, quicker, cheaper, get it out there and iterate and learn and readjust and do it again. Yeah. And I mean, I think we were talking about Twitter before. You know, look, I know Twitter is not a great place for some people, especially women, people of color who experience harassment. But I think for a lot of people, it can be a place where you learn a lot and you become a more empathetic person because you're able to read and listen to voices that might not come across your 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 lived experience and, you know, outside of your home. And so that's been helpful for me. I also think like a big lesson to cut and the Oakland story is a really good one that I think bike advocates for a long time were very prescriptive, like put a bike lane on that street. That's the solution. As opposed to starting with what the problem is. Drivers are speeding. People are getting hurt. Okay, a bike lane is one of a menu of options that we can do for this street. And um, But let's listen to what people in their own communities want. Let them describe the problem and hear their stories because that, that thing that you go in there thinking in your little siloed mind, you know, is not going to be the thing that is the solution. You know, I mean, I think on a very basic level, we see stories of people who say like, put a stop sign in, put a stop sign in. And, you know, that's not always going to be the answer. So just starting with what's the problem? What's the story we need to tell? Who are the, who are the quote unquote characters in this story? Who should be the main character of this story? Let's, let's listen to them and let them tell it. Yeah. Because even if that solution, like say that stop sign, even if that's part of the answer, because it very well may, may be that, yes, the stop sign, but just as importantly, this, 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 and this too. Yeah. If you just give me the stop sign, you've only taken me like one quarter of the way there. And being able to stop and listen gives you that opportunity to find out. 
And I also think that works in the other direction because as advocates, when you go to a Department of Transportation and say, we want a bike lane on that street, we want a stop sign on that street. Well, there's some engineer there who's like, nah, the traffic counts and the fatality counts and the and the speed of cars doesn't warrant that thing that you have asked for. And now you've shut down the conversation as opposed to just saying to your Department of Transportation and your elected officials, this is what we think the problem is. How can you help us? And then again, they can come to you with a menu of options that might do something unexpected, that might solve the problem in a way that you you know, are not, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a planner, I'm an advocate. And so I think an advocate's job is, is more to identify the problem than to say, th- then this is the one solution. And so, you know, my, my big advice to advocates is just call out the problem first and then see where that gets you. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It, it keeps bringing back that whole concept of, you know, what comes first, the leadership or the community advocacy and the community there with you, because you've got your, the community is, you know, big C community is, is vast, you know, because it includes the advocates, it in also includes the people who are, you know, cheering in the background there and not necessarily uh, vocal about it. It includes the people who are uh, fearful of what might be happening. Yeah. And so it's it, it's really amazing when you consider that anything ever gets done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, because we point to the 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 high profile examples of like you know paris and and other uh, other cities where there's a vision that's put out by leadership and saying this is where we're going to go and that's inspirational and we can turn to that and, and say oh wouldn't it be nice if we could do that but the reality down at the block level and the community level and in North America and in American cities in particular, it's it's a much more complicated process. Yeah, it's always a huge argument between what's better, quote unquote, better top down change making or ground up. And, and I don't think you have to pick and one influences the other. You know, Jeanette Sadiq Khan is seen as this like shining example of, of someone who with Bloomberg's help and kind of permission just went for it and changed a lot of things, got us a pedestrianized Times Square and, and bike lanes. But, you know, she was able to do what she did, not just because of the force of her talent and personality, and I'm a huge fan I, and I love her, but because of decades of advocacy that had preceded her and built up the people in place in neighborhoods who ran interference for her when things got tough. And she also hired people like John Orcutt, who was an advocate who had worked at Transportation Alternatives to be her policy director. And people like Danny Simons, who started Summer Streets in New York and helped get that off the ground. And these are people who grew out of this like street level advocacy and very smart, brilliant people, but were there on the street, like fighting these battles. And you don't get, look, Anne Hidalgo, we're all paying attention to her now because she's done so much over the last six months, 10 months or so. But there's decades of work that happened in Paris before her, before she held the office she held that laid the groundwork so that when the crisis of the pandemic hit, she was able to pull the trigger and not without some amount of controversy, get through it and get good stuff done. So there's no, there's, it's, it's real chicken and egg sort of thing. 
I, I mean, there's no getting around. You need the top level executive, as we've seen in New York, where de Blasio has rolled things out very slowly and under a different mayor, it would be faster. But you you need those bottom level advocates working from the street level to push the people and give those folks. Politicians want cover. They want to be able to see, say like, nope, there are people who support me and we're going to do it anyway. And that's that's what our job is as advocates. Yeah, the politicians want the cover of a community that is, you know, behind that effort and uh, and and basically helps give them that mandate to be able to push through uh, the staff, you know, the Jeanette Sadek Khans of the world that are out there who are in leadership and also lower levels of staff, staff positions. They need the cover, too, yeah. as they're trying to implement, because very quickly they become the target of the vitriol. Uh, and so it, it's it, it, what it really basically comes down to is that you have to have it all. You have to have the leadership. You have to have the vision. You have to have the staff, the you know, at the in the bureaucracy on board with this. And then you also have to have a well-educated and inspired community, the public that is like, yeah, wow, this is something we want. We want. We want a more livable environment. We want our kids to be able to walk and bike to, to their friend's house and to school and uh, things of that nature. You know, we want our grandparents to be able to live a mobile, active lifestyle within their neighborhoods and their communities without having to be tied down to a car. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. And then and then run the risk of of being isolated when, you know, they get to that age where they can no longer drive. Yeah. You know, this is this is where we're at. Doug, is there anything that we haven't yet covered that you're just burning to talk about? <laughs> no, I think, you know, I, I think the big thing for me, for advocates, the lessons I always try to say is like, you just have to step outside of yourself. And, you know, I'm a TV producer. I have to think, who is my audience for this? The audience for a travel channel show is different than the audience for a PBS show, is different from the audience for like an NBC comedy. And you really have to tailor your message to who you're speaking to. And really knowing when not to speak is part of communications, knowing when to elevate other people. You know, I think I have a very high profile online because I tweet a lot and I have a podcast and I get asked to do stuff like this. So I get called all the time from, you know, the New York Post reporter who needs a quote. And lately I've just said like, no, you don't need to hear from me. Like, of course you're going to hear from me. I'm the character you're going to put in your drama. Let's put a different character in your drama. And so I think that's part of it. Knowing what story you're telling, who your audience is, when to be the main character, when to take a supporting role or when to just be a producer, you know, and step back, let other people take the spotlight. Those are all really important things as we work to make our cities better. Yeah. So that was the advice for the advocates. Let's uh, let's tee up a little bit of advice for uh, somebody who you know found their way to the Active Towns podcast here and is are listening in, and they don't consider themselves advocates; they just consider themselves a parent, yeah, you know, a community member. What advice would you have for them if they are inspired to try to make a difference on their block, in their community, in their city? Yeah, advocacy has, it's a weird word, right? Because it, it sounds like a full-time job. And, and for some people it is, or at least a part-time extracurricular job. And most people don't have time for meetings and all that. So, 
You know, I think the most important thing is I started, like I said at the beginning, I started biking and I was like, oh, there's a new bike lane on my street. How did it get there? And I just found out how it got there. So, you know, it's basic, but we are so focused on national politics and what President Biden is going to do and what Congress is going to do. But the person who has the most power to affect your life is your local city council person, the, the business association director. And those are the people who need to hear from you, even if it's just one email and that's all you ever send saying, hey, I heard you're thinking about putting loading zones in on my block to cut down on you know, double park cars and make it easier for UPS. I love it. That would be great. And I'd be willing to lose parking if that's what it took. They need to hear from you because the people who stand to lose something, the NIMBYs that we often talk about, the people who want to park their car for free, they're going to reach out. So, you know, we, we often have an antagonistic relationship with our elected officials. You shouldn't. I think if you're just a regular person, a parent who's busy, if you see something you love in your city, a new bike lane, uh, a new park, find out how it got there, write to the person at City Hall or in your local elected official's office and tell them that you appreciate it. Because you can be sure that they're getting 10 other emails from people who don't. So I think that is the, the easiest and sometimes most effective way that you can be an advocate without being an advocate. Love it. Excellent advice. Okay. What's the best way for folks to uh, follow along with you and your work that you're doing these days? So I, uh, on Twitter, I'm at Brooklyn Spoke. The podcast can be found anywhere you subscribe to podcasts. We're also at thewaroncars.org where we have all of our back episodes. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram at The War on Cars. Fantastic. I love it. Hey, Doug, as always, it's such a pleasure uh, chatting with you. And thank you very much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 61 of the Active Towns podcast. I certainly hope you found this discussion with Doug Gordon to be interesting and informative. And I do highly recommend the War on Cars podcast for some very thoughtful dialogue and good-natured ribbing in a quintessential New York style. Please be sure to check out all the photos and reference links included in this episode's landing page on our website, as well as in the show notes. Three quick reminders before we part ways. First, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any thoughts on future guests or topics. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns.org. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. Second, if you haven't yet done so, please subscribe to my monthly Culture of Activity newsletter. Third, here's that final fundraising plug. If you're in a position to do so, please consider including us in your philanthropic plans. Please note that as a very small nonprofit, your donations, no matter how small, add up and make a big difference in my ability to deliver this content. To make a contribution, just head over to activetowns.org and click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Okay, that's all for this week. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.